Hello, and welcome to your favorite true crime podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Fish. Thank you very much for being here. My journey in the true crime community started in August of 2020 when a friend of mine suggested we start a YouTube channel. A year after that, and I spun off my own channel called Gavin Fish True Crime. Check me out on YouTube or visit GavinFish.com. Since I started my journey, I've listened as families of victims have told me their stories. I've interviewed police chiefs, prosecutors, and judges. I've combed through boxes and boxes of documents. I think I've read at least 20,000 pages of investigative files. And I've met the most incredible people who spend their time working to solve crimes and correct injustices. These are people I deeply admire, and that's why I started this podcast, to share their stories with you. Today, I'm sharing the conversation I had with John and Sally, a married couple who are the creators of a podcast called True Crime Investigators UK. I met them in London this past June when I attended CrimeCon UK. John spent 30 years as a police officer and detective, and Sally spent 13 years on the force, followed by a distinguished career as a barrister and solicitor. You can find them at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Enjoy! I've come prepared having listened to an episode of your podcast. And yeah. uh, by the way, I really enjoy it. <laughs> like, oh, good. Um, there's something that is different in our cultures, right? I, I think that oh, yeah. the stereotypes of Americans being loud and brash is pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, and I think the stereotype of uh, Brits being a little more, a little more reserved it's very accurate and it's it feels good to to just kind of listen to you go on narrating the the uh your adventure right i was listening to joan woodward uh, house i was yeah. just going to ask you which one yes yeah yeah so i haven't i haven't finished it but i yeah. i've to probably get, half an hour into the first episode yeah just to get a flavor of how we do it yeah the thing that i'm most curious about i guess to start off with here is you guys aren't imposters like I am. You actually are trained and seasoned detectives, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, we've, well, we've, I mean, I, I'll say, do you want to, you go first, Sally, and tell your career? Because yours is uh, a very unusual career path. I mean, from, from my point of view, I, I joined the police. Well, I joined the cadet, um, I, I guess, like the equivalent to um, a police academy um, type role when I was 16. And then I joined as a police officer when I was 18 and a half. Is that pretty uh, typical? That seems really young. Do you know, at the time, it didn't seem young. It just seemed like I wanted to finish school and I wanted to go and earn some money and I wanted to go and do something. Um, and my mum and dad let me. But now as, as an adult, I look back on that and think it and think, what were they thinking of letting me go, <laughs> letting me leave home and 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 go and be a police cadet age 16. So so yes, looking back, it, it is young. 
So uh, after after your academy, after you were a cadet, did you like walk a beat? Were you a uniformed officer? How'd that yeah, work? I was a uniformed officer when I was 18 and a half. Um, and then I had a, a, a rural beat, which was um, my patrol area was a very rural area in uh, in the East Midlands, which is right in the middle of of England. Yeah. Um and you are very much on your own. So if you get into any bother, your nearest help could be 10 miles away. Now, I just told you I want to steer clear of politics, but one of the things that I noticed, like I've been um in the Midlands actually, in the Midlands I was pulled over for a traffic violation and I was put into a panda wagon with about six other officers. And what I noticed is none of them were armed. I actually thought for a second, I think I could take these guys. I probably couldn't have. But <laughs> but you're you're unarmed, you're out in the middle of England and you're miles away from any help. And you're on your own. So yeah, but that Things have That's, changed a little bit. Things that, yeah, the terrorism things, has changed. Things have changed a little bit. Now we do have um, some patrol vehicles that that do carry uh, firearms. So that has changed. So I, I was then um, a regular police officer. I then became a detective. Um, served some time being a detective in a in a city area. What is that process going from being a, a cop that walks the beat to being a detective? What did that look like? In, in the days when I did it and when John mm-hmm. did it, your paperwork as a uniformed officer would go through the ranks and all your crime would go through the, through the ranks of the um, detective, chief inspector. Detec- detective chief inspector. So, so the hierarchy in the CID, the Crime Investigation Department, would be seeing the work that you were doing, and they would identify who they wanted to be on on the Criminal Investigation Department. So it was kind of you wanting to do it, and them wanting you wanting them to have you. So, what were some of the crimes that you were looking at as a cop that caught the attention of the? you know, detective chief inspector. I hope I got that right. What are, what are some of the things that you deal with on, on the regular? Well, it, it basically everything you can think of that's criminal, uh, very often the uniform are the first to go to the, you know, to the scene of a burglary, a robbery, even a murder. They very often are on the, on the sort of scene, the first, and then the CID, if they're about, they will attend, but very often pick it up as quick as possible. But so for routine crime, let's call it that, it could be theft of milk bottles. We used to have our milk delivered on the doorstep in those days. Theft of milk bottles up to mm. house burglaries, thefts, ro- you know, robberies. And the serious stuff went to the CID, but the the lion's share went to uniform. Went to the uniform branch. And they would be given the task of investigating it, taking the witness statements, interviewing people, arresting offenders and then processing them in the police station. So that's what the DCI, the detective chief inspector, would look for. He would see your paperwork, how well you'd written statements, how well you'd interviewed prisoners, 
because it was all typed up eventually into a, what we called a file, which is like a thick wad of paper that it would be all there. And they would read it and check it. And it was like the headmaster, really. You'd they'd, they'd sort of highlight, uh, oh, I think you've made a mistake there or, or whatever. And that's how, basically, they picked the staff. It, that isn't allowed these days. Obviously, you've got to go for interviews and selection. and you know. But there, they you, you were sort of highlighted. And then you'd get, I got a phone call from the DCI who said, can you come and see me? and sit down and have a chat and, you know, I've looked at you for two years, you know, doing the daily police work. So, uh, they won't let you know while they're doing it. They're just, they brought you in. They're like, yeah, so I've had my eye on you for a while. Yes. Well, and very often that if you were wanted to and you were key, not every cop wants to be a detective. You know, there's traffic departments, there's dog units, there's all sorts of different things. And a lot of people, it's not for them. But... If you got sort of a decent job where it involved quite a lot of investigation and a lot of time, you'd come off uniform and go into the CID in a suit and tie, as we used to wear, and you'd go on sort of, you know, several days and help out and learn your trade. It was a, it was a learning process. And, of course, after that job was finished, you'd then go back to your normal uniform duties. And that built up over a period of time. And you got sort of some... Um, you know, standing in the CID department. Some credibility. You know, yeah, John's yeah. wanting to do this. And and behind the scenes, of course, when they were looking for new recruits into the CID, I'm sure, well, I know, because it happens when I was in the CID, the DCI and others would come in and say, you know, we need somebody. Who, who do you fancy? Because you've got to work with people as well. So you've got to fit into an office of CID. So having gone through that process, you get the call and have a chat and. I said, yeah, I'd love to. That's what I want to do. You know I do, you know, because you'd see these people about in, the, you know, in your daily life and they'd say, what are you up to? And I'd tell them, and, oh, great. Yeah, you're doing all right. Carry on. And then when a vacancy come up, you got got the call. But there's that me. real hierarchy, <laughs> right? You're trying to work yourself up that yeah. up that ladder. Sally, was were there any challenges? What was, what was the, um, I guess, the police force? What did it look like? Was it mostly male? Were was it well uh, staffed with female officers as well? How did that? What did that look like when you started? When I started, it wasn't well staffed with females. Uh, going back to the to the early seventies and before, we used to have, um, and this was nationwide. We had uh, a police women's department, and they were separate. It was segregated. It was, seg sex. it was segregation. Um, and we didn't, and police women didn't work with police men until 1973, 74. Yeah. It was in, I joined in 1977, and the old police women's department, as it was, had been disbanded. And of course, even then, we were sort of stepping towards equal opportunities for everybody. What, was the, that then. what <laughs> was the justification for that, though? I mean, I know that looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But what was the justification? Were they afraid of? Well, I mean, you guys ultimately got married, right? You were you were both cops. Yeah. And were they were they trying to prevent you from knowing each other? So how? Do, well, it, it, it's it's when you look back. In fact, just before we came on air talking to you, I just said just suddenly realised it's 45 years since I joined the police and I served 30 years and I've been retired 15. And then it was so 
Dickensian, really. And it, although it's only 45 years ago, it, you couldn't uh, live together unmarried. You had to be married. And if you were trying to associate with each other and they found out, there was hell to pay. They, they, would, they would separate you. Yeah. One, one of you would be stationed elsewhere. Yeah. So it was. It uh, wasn't encouraged. No, it wasn't encouraged. And of course, it was just old English ways. You know, that's police officers don't live together unmarried because that's not the British way. Of course, people did, but the police were still carrying on the the old traditions. The old traditions. Yeah, and that didn't change until uh, when we we were the second couple that lived together unmarried uh, because another couple had taken a case or threatened to take it to sort of some kind of tribunal saying this is not fair in the modern day of the 1980s. And uh, they buckled and said, well, yeah, all right. How <laughs> rebellious was that? How wow. rebellious was that in 1987? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. In 87? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it was sort of cutting edge stuff then. Uh, I mean, now, and you used to have to, in, in certainly in, because... I'm sure you're aware, but uh, England and Wales is policed by the British police. The Scottish police have their own force, and some of the laws are different, and the methods, mm. and the Irish are the same, although we're all United Kingdom. But England and Wales was the same. And, and then you had to live in police accommodation. Mm. They provided a police house, like a tied cottage, as a farmer would have. And you couldn't live or buy your own property until when I joined in 77, it was 15 years. You had to do 15 years before you were eligible to buy your own house. And Why? over the years, well, it was, it was when you look back, although you didn't sort of appreciate it at the time, of course, they got everybody in police houses because you were then tied in. And if you wanted to leave, you'd have to leave your home because it was obviously a police owned house wow. or a county. And also, most of the houses were on what we would call housing estates. I, I presume you, I don't know whether you call them that. that that's over. like a, a project, right? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a small, home. yeah, small, uh, you know, conurbation or something, whatever. And of course, it stood out as a police house. Very often they had signs on the door. And of course, even though you were off And a blue light. And a blue light. <laughs> no and, way. Uh, even, even, um, <laughs> When you're off duty, of course, they knew where you lived and they'd come and knock on your door and just say whatever they got to tell you or whatever they wanted to report. And, of course, so really, you were never off duty. Even though you get paid for eight hours, you were still at work because if you didn't answer the phone or the door, there was trouble. And the wife was expected to answer the phone when the male, usually males, of course, but police, was at work. So they really got a lot of work done free of charge. <laughs> wow. And this is probably, I probably got my rebellious streak from my mother because my dad was a police officer and we lived in a police house. Well, several police houses because they were, they were always moving us, us around. And my mother was a nurse and, uh, and, and they used to work opposite shifts so that, so that, um, Obviously, me and my sister, and then later my my brother were all looked after. One parent would be at home. So when my mum was in the house on her own, and people would come and knock on the door, you know, and ask for my dad because they got they got a problem. 
she was really kind of quite irked about that and and would get <laughs> get a little bit uppity about it you know this is this is not my job i i work my job when i uh, when i go to the hospital and uh, and and yes yeah, she wasn't your typical police officer's wife she she was a little more feisty huh yeah yeah and also i mean we talk about this quite a bit i mean things now are completely different now you join the police you can live with who you like uh, you can live where you like. Uh, that has all gone over the 30 years that I was in, and it changed completely. But when we talk of previous to our time, I mean, your father had about, was it eight house moves? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. And, of course, you just got told, oh, you're, you're being moved from one end of our county to another. And, you know, your wife and children weren't considered. They were at school or the wife worked. Well, that's not our problem. My dad used to come home and say, come on then, kids, we're on the move. <laughs> and and that would be like on the Friday. And on the Monday, I'd be in a different school, um, which was always really difficult, um, you know, sort of as, as, a, as a youngster going to a new school, sort of term had already started, friendships had already begun. Mm. Um, and you know, in popped Sally. Um, yes, you're sitting there, and right, so this is my new school. So it was kind of difficult, yeah. Archaic, we've done that to our kids. We, Kimberly, and I have been married 22 years. I think this house is probably 13 or 14, something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I haven't counted, but. We've lived in three states and uh, and countless, well, we should be able to count them, but it's probably 12 or 13, something like that. And it's hard on kids. My my folks did the same thing. My, uh, my sister from, she complains about it a little bit, but, you know, starting from kindergarten through 12th grade, which is, you know, our system here, I think she attended nine schools. Wow. So it's, it's pretty tough, but. Kids are resilient, right? Oh, yeah. So what did your you, parents do then? Were, were they in the military? or? Uh, it started out in the military. They, my dad was in the Air Force. And uh, I would say that that was the time that they were most settled. It was when they were in the military. Dad was stationed up in North Dakota. Uh, afterwards, they were just, you know, moss doesn't grow on a rolling stone. They were just a couple of rolling stones. And they liked mm -hmm. to move around a bit. And um, I have to say, I... I've enjoyed being kind of having that lifestyle. I lived far away from grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff like that. And um, we live 2,800 miles away from my folks now. They live back in California where I was raised and, uh, and we live out here in Pennsylvania. But I kind of enjoy that my kids, when they get together, like my folks were just out here earlier this month for our Independence Day. And it's like, it's like this huge deal to have grandpa and grandma there. You know, it's pretty fun. I'm curious uh, how long. Let's let's start with you, Sally. Once once you made your way up from. And by the way, sorry, I'm like jumping all over the place here. You guys sound like you're from the north. Are you guys Manchester or Preston, something like that? Oh, you're doing very well. We're just below Manchester. Okay. Yeah. So is that where you served most of your time as police officers up in the north? Yeah, we've been in the same force. We're, well, Sally did 13 years. Uh, I did 30. 
were in the same force I was for my whole 30-year career. But having said that, there were certain units that were formed that you actually were seconded elsewhere, but you were, you remained a member of your own home force. Mm. So we've always stayed where we've been born, to be honest. So out of that 13 years, Sally, how how much of that time was a uniform police officer and then how much was detective? Oh, let me think. Um, I think officially uniform would have been nine years and and yeah, and the rest would be would be officially CID, um, would be officially a detective. But of those nine years that I did in uniform, quite a few of the last sort of three years, I would be helping out and going and doing, um, working on um, serious, serious crime. So it's it was kind of a um, a transitional phase in those last in those three years before I actually went to the city and. Um, and became a detective full time. So it's, it's not a fast process. You've really got to put in your time. Yeah. Learn, I, learn on the job, right? You're on the desk. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, going back to my starting point, it was generally uh, at least five years in uniform before you were considered for CID because you needed the experience. You need to learn your trade, if you like, your apprenticeship. And when I went it was starting to change and i went on cid very quickly uh, in comparison i think it was about two and a half years his mum always says that to everybody my boy was the youngest detective <laughs> was that the case you yes oh yeah and and now we've gone even uh, we've you know without, we're not talking politics but we've obviously run our public services like probably the rest of the world into the ground so the police and everything else isn't the same as it used to be. Yeah. So the process is even quicker now because they just can't retain the staff, to be honest. Oh, that's rough. That's rough. Mm. So you spent 30 years on the force, John. Yes. What, yeah. what are some of the things that you saw that people are like, I can't believe that you had to deal with that? Well, I suppose we'll come on to some of the podcasts we're, we're working on at the moment. And times have changed dramatically, like probably the rest of the world. But you mentioned about having weapons, the police being armed. And when did you come over and you said you were stopped by the police in Leicester or wherever? When was that? Let's see. That was that was somewhere in the Midlands. I can't remember where that was. Uh, we had, what year would that have been? That would have been 2014, 2015, something oh, like that. Oh, fairly recent. Yeah. 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 And even today, um, the majority of, the police are unarmed and, and you'll see they more were serious that day by the way like i <laughs> i had just had a meal i was with a co-worker and uh we were in a rental car and i was stopped at the stoplight i was the first person at the stoplight and i could see there was like all these people behind me well in america that creates like social pressure right mm -hmm. and here in the states unless it says no turning on red you can turn on red mm -hmm. uh it would be the opposite way, but you can turn right on red. You can't turn yeah. left on red, right? Yeah. But I was in the UK and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to make all these people wait. So I turned left on red. Apparently that was a no-no. And the guy behind me was a cop. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, Unlucky. But they were but serious. They, they like brought in 
multiple cars, a whole panda wagon. They locked me yeah. up inside that van. The whole thing. They were serious. Oh yeah, it's uh, because over here and just a bit more about our background or my background. I got a brother lives in California, uh-huh. and we visited California, and we went to the San Diego with the San Diego. I'm going back 30 years. And they looked after, I was there for three days. They took me everywhere, did everything in the helicopter, which we didn't have helicopters. London may have had one, but north of London didn't. And we went on, and we went. Did he worked mm. as a police officer in California? My brother didn't, no. I oh, just, okay. I just went into San Diego police station and sort of knocked on the counter and said, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> um, <No way. laughs> That's cool. And I just sort of uh, said, I'm on holiday. Uh, my brother lives here. I just wondered if anybody got any time to talk to me. I've never been to America before on the first time. That's San cool. Diego. And a, a lady came down who, what she actually did the Crime Stoppers program, which was very new then. We hadn't got it in England then. And she says, oh, yeah, come in. And she'd been to England. She loved England and the English. And you just couldn't fault the, the welcoming party, which was totally unplanned. And she remains, in fact, she's coming to England in a few weeks' in time. In August. Uh, well, you've been friends this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. 30 cool. odd years later, we've, we're still friends. We haven't seen each other for a long time, but she's coming over for a wedding and we're going to London to meet her for three days. We and always Zoom on a Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. We have a, a quick, quick Zoom with her. And she's just actually moved from San Diego to New York. Um, oh, so it's fam- an easier hop for A family are in New York, and she always says, oh, I'll be able to come over to England all the time now because because we're so much nearer. <laughs> well, of course we are. There's only the Atlantic <laughs> between us now. There's only a small pond. Small pond. <laughs> but when I went over first time, of course, and I spent three days and, and subsequent visits with Finn, I just couldn't believe the difference in policing was incredible. And, you know, the the firepower that the cops were, you know, at the Beckham call. And I remember it was the first, second time, I can't remember, you know, Robbie Williams, Robin Williams, the the Mm -hmm. comedian, the actor. I remember him being on stage on on your, you know, the American television, and he was on about the British bobbies. And he says, I've been to England. It's so incredible. They don't carry guns. And he says, what do they do? And he says, I'm sure they just shout, shout, stop. And if you don't stop, I'll shout, stop again. Because <laughs> what else could you do? And it was hilarious, really, but it was true. And, you know, the difference was incredible. And, yeah. you know, when you looked at the crime, I, I can only compare it with San Diego. It was incredible difference. And, yeah, you know, where do you was, think that comes from? I mean, we are a more criminal country, I think, out here in the States than it seems well, yeah. to be in the UK. It's very true what they say that what America, what's happened in America, we catch up. And now we are a lot more um, gun orientated, although we ban most guns in this country. But of course, in America, you've got all the access to weaponry, which yeah. is controversial with what's happening in the schools yeah. and all the rest of it. That's your constitutional well, right, right, though, isn't it? To, it is. to, to carry arms. And that's one of those things that uh, as I talk to people about it, this is a very divisive subject in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that we probably have more in common than, than the extremists on both sure. opposite sides of the spectrum would want us to believe. But um, the whole idea of gun violence and even mass gun violence isn't new at all. You just 
take a trip to Arizona and go visit Tombstone and Mm -hmm. you can see what the old West was like, right? It's just the way, and and we're, we're a young country, right? We're 200 coming up on 250. Um, but but that culture is deeply ingrained within us that, uh, that, and I think it even comes down to, uh, you know, all the way back to when it pre pre colonization, when, uh, the pilgrims were coming over, these were people that were escaping religious persecution. They had tried going to the Nordic countries. Now they're headed back. They're going to the new country and they're, they're going to cut this thing out of the wilderness. And the very first thing they started being is violent, right? There were people on the continent that didn't really like what they were doing. So mm-hmm. I feel like we've got 400 years of history of just where there is a small segment of our population that is accepting of being violent with them. that's yeah. Over pretty- here, we've always, we're a nation of, you know, we've got masses of, well, what we think are masses, but in comparison to landmass, we're only a small country. But the, the most, you know, rural areas, people hunted rabbits with shotguns and always have done and always will do. But the big change, I think, came in probably the 80s when drugs started taking a hold mm. in England. When I joined in 77, and for some years after, I don't think I ever saw any drugs. It was just, you know, it just came and it was, you know, a lot of, Continental people and Asians were coming over and the drug sales were increasing. And of course, the supply lines were getting easier for them to do. And then we got hit with the heroin and cocaine. You know, was was an epidemic. And of course, lots of money was being made, which I'm sure the Americans have had for many, many years before us. And of course, the firearms were part of protecting the drug dealers and the masses of money they were making. And of course, that then grew and grew to the point where, you know, we became a more violent society. But the police still weren't armed, and were still not, as a matter of routine, for, for most police officers. Yeah, it's the exception to be armed. In yeah. The UK, I mean, the terrorism has now heightened it even more. You know, in my era, we had the IRA in the 70s, 80s, 90s, which was, you know, a bad time. But even that didn't. Uh, necessitate everybody carrying guns. We didn't, but then we've now got the the more violent terrorists, if you like, you know, and we're having a lot more terrorist incidents. And so now at an airport, main railway stations, you'll see openly police carrying weapons and and you know some kind of high powered rifle, because that's what the terrorists have been doing. So, but. Still, the vast majority of policemen do not carry, do weapons. Not carry weapons. You know, now that you mention that, when I was in the train station, I did see an armed, uniformed police officer. Yeah. In London. In London. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the train station that, that we go into from our area is the London St. Pancras. And, yeah. and we often see armed officers in the in the railway station. And I think it's just a reassurance thing more than, but we have had terrorist incidents in railway stations and one in Manchester where the, I can't pronounce it, is it Ariana Grande concert was? Yeah, that's right. A few years and it blew, it blew up, you know, himself and a bomb in the, which was in the complex of the railway station. 
And of course, we were found wanting, and the, the you know all the inquiries that are subsequently held. You know, what do you do? You can't. We're not armed all the time, and, and these are one of them. Yeah, but, but that leads me to a question. I mean, if one of the things that I try to be hypersensitive about in my work on YouTube is that. I am always Monday morning quarterbacking, right? That that's how we say it out here. I have, I have 20, 20 hindsight. I, so it's really easy to, uh, to criticize the police or whomever is involved in a case that I might be looking at, but how does that feel in the moment when you're working on a force and you, and something happens? I mean, that's got to suck, right? As somebody who is a professional cop to, to be put under the microscope like that. Oh yeah. It, I mean, the the difficulties or the problems that are highlighted in hindsight, you know, we we kind of listen to that sort of thing and then say, I can see how that's happened because of, you know, what whatever reason. And what's reported in the media is probably, you know, the the headline. Thing. Um, the police didn't do this or the police didn't do that. But then you have to take it back a few steps and say, well, how did you get to that point? Um, In fact, we, we spoke about the Joan Woodhouse case, which is the last one we've done. And, oh, yeah. And, and of course, the author of a book approached us and said, will you look at this for doing it? And we read it. We didn't know anything about the case. And the whole sort of theme of it was that the police have made a botch of it. Scotland Yard detectives used to go out in those days into the provinces, you know, because they were the experienced guys. And that only stopped uh, probably in the early 70s. They used to yeah. come come out into the sticks, as they called it, to give the give the bobbies a chuck, you know, on a murder because we, we didn't get that many. And, of course, when you actually analyse Joan's case without going into it in fine detail, all the things that were said that there was a, there was mistakes by the police. They they covered it up. They'd done this. They'd done that. Done the other. And it was a long list of all these things. And they they said there was either an inability for the police to conduct uh, a good investigation, or there was an unwillingness. So they were either didn't want to do it, or they couldn't do it. Was one, that one did or, that end up being true? As you guys looked at that case, well, well that. I mean, this goes back to uh, the Joan Woodhouse murder that occurred in 1948. Yeah. And, and, and the, the myth that has been perpetuated over the years. And when this author approached us and said, I've written a book about um, this, it's called Justice for Joan. And, and we said, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a read. So we read through it and we thought, gosh, yeah, all these, all these mistakes that have, have been made. So then what was it? Because we don't take on board anybody else's research. We go back to the beginning and we do our own wherever we can. And on this occasion, um, there was in the public records office down in West Sussex, which is in the southeast corner of, uh, of England. In the records office was a police file pertaining to the Joan Woodhouse murder. So we went down there, we went and stayed down there for a few days and we went through the file and all the things that that had been said over the years, um, we found 
just not to be true. It was it was the most thorough investigation, given the day that that they were doing it, i.e., 1948. You know, no DNA, no um, no CCTV, no communication systems, and and that kind of thing. You know, given the day that they did it in, they did a really really thorough job. Um. And so then we got to the stage where we got to break the news of this to the author who who was uh, who who put us onto the case in the first place. And he said, he said, I, I looked at that file, and it, I, I don't. He, he hadn't gone through it uh, as thoroughly as we had. And he did say to us, "You are conducting a really forensic." investigation into this and it's like yes because the police have been their investigation and their reinvestigation has been trashed for all these years so we want to know where the problems lie and actually when we look at the paperwork and the statements and the and the reports all the things that have been bandied about for all of these years it's just not true yeah and the other problem was and still is that people are criminal justice system is different to yours. Different laws, different methods, different procedures. Uh, basically, sure. you know, a burglar is a burglary wherever you are in the world, but there's different ways. And the rules of evidence are very, you know, going back a long time and it's sort of rolled on into history. And people don't understand what is admissible evidence in a criminal court of law in England. You know, and a lot of all the, the problems come that it's tittle tattle that's then become fact. But when you actually say, well, where's this information come from? Well, everybody knows it. It's been circulated for years. And, and that is not evidence, right? No, it's not no. evidence. And of course, that's where and our criminal system is a, is a very complicated one because, I mean, it's grown up over hundreds of years to what it is today. So, I mean, it's yeah, actually, you know, I was surprised to learn that the British Constitution is no written document at all. It's no. just it's just history and customs. Right. Yeah. Mm. And actually, Sally, you're probably out of the three of us, the best suited to talk about that, because after your time at the police, you went. I am assuming you went back to school, but you qualified as a lawyer. Is that I, I did? Yeah, I I was injured when I was in the police. So. Um, I had I had to leave. Um, and was then, your plan to stay in the police your whole career? That was I was your plan? I was I was definitely a career cop. I was definitely going to be in it for the for the my thirty years service. Um, things changed, and then you're left with the decision. Well, what do I do now? I own, I only know how to be a cop. I am that's that's the only thing I know how to do. From As the time I said, you're 16 years from old. I was, from when I was 16, I was yeah. now in my 30s and it's, what do I do? Um, so I, I needed to, to I'd, I'd never been to university. A lot, of, a lot of youngsters will stay on at school till they're 18 and then go straight to university and then come out when they're 22, mm-hmm. 21, 22, 23, something like that. Uh, and then take a take a job. Well, I'd left school at sixteen. Um, joined the cadets, joined the regular regular force. So when I was forced into a situation, I just didn't I didn't have the requisite qualifications. Um, 
I got five, what, what we call O levels um, that you take when you're 16. Well, one of those was in cooking, you know, so mm. <laughs> it's what am I going to do? So I needed to go to university to take a, to take my law degree. But I thought I've been out of the classroom for so long. I think I ought to um, enroll in a college and do a, do a year, do a couple of, because the ones up from the O levels were the A levels. So I'll, I'll do a couple of those and just see how we get on. So I, I went back to a college um, that was inhabited by 16, 17, 18-year-olds, and I was in my 30s. Um, so that, that, was, that was an education in itself. Um, but I, I, I got to two of the A-levels, and then I went on to university, um, spent three years in university, got my degree, and then I enrolled on a, a, the bar vocational course, which is a years-long course, to be a barrister. Um, what is the difference between a barrister and a solicitor? The, the training is, the training for a barrister is completely different to that of a solicitor. Um, well, do they do different jobs ultimately? What, what's, <laughs> it's something that's completely foreign to us over here in the States, of, right? Kind of, of a lawyer's a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why now you will get most solicitors and barristers referring to themselves as lawyers. What do you do for a living? I'm a lawyer, you know, because, because there's that difference. Well, what does a barrister do? A barrister is seen to be some kind of senior lawyer. Well, that's not the case. Um, the barristers do lots of the crown court work, which is the, the, um, the, the more serious matters. But these days, so can a solicitor do that? So, so the, the separation that went through hundreds of years is actually now, that line is, is a bit more muddied. It's not quite as separate as it used to be. So historically speaking, was a solicitor the kind of person that would represent a client for like wills and paperwork and, and kind of those sorts of things? Then when it came to a criminal trial, it was a barrister that stood up to the bar and and made the case is am i understanding that correctly yeah i mean yeah. The, the solicitors would represent them in the police stations because now i don't know about america but over here you're allowed to have a solicitor free the state pays for you to be defended by a solicitor in a police station while you're being interviewed and they would prepare the cases and the crown court was the ones that wear the gowns and the wigs so that in the criminal crown crown, crown court and of course they were sort of it's more of an advocacy, isn't it? They present yeah. and, and more specialised, whereas a solicitor might do many th roles. He might do wills and probate. He might do divorces and crime, whereas they generally were criminal barristers that we dealt with it through you know, the Crown Court system. And it was old England and still is. They still wear the wigs and gowns. Mm. And, you and know, they have, the, on, on their gowns, they have... Um, Although it's it's flat to the back of their gown, it's like a hood uh, on on the back of their gown, and that used to be. I mean, I'm talking hundreds of years ago, where you didn't talk about money. Money was that dirty subject that you didn't talk about. 
So when your barrister had represented you many years ago, you used to put the money in his hood <laughs> at the back of him. So he wouldn't. That's so awesome. Then, so then you'd never have to talk about the money because you just gave it to him by putting it in his hood. And that's why. And, and they, they still keep it there. Yeah. That tradition is still alive and well. Yeah. And, and but they don't they don't put the money in the hood anymore. <laughs> no. Um, we're a bit more civilized and now we do invoices. But it was interesting. Why? Why do they wear wigs and gowns? You know, you ask that question even today. You know, we're in this, the modern world and they still wear wigs and gowns and the judge wears his robes red or whatever colours for his rank and his, and his wig. And it goes back to that it's to make them all look the same. So you haven't got the advantage of, you know, say a very well-paid lawyer who's very good would wear a very flashy suit and yeah. silk tie and shirt and stand out as a, look at him, he's smart, he must be good, he must be, and and get more believable sort of presence in the so court. it's a fairness thing. Fairness thing. And it's just stuck, hasn't it? And they still, I mean, they, they've mentioned about scrapping them, haven't they? But but it's quite, you know, when you're there, it's it's quite terrifying. <laughs> you know, you've got... They all look the same. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and just an interesting fact, to qualify as a barrister, you have to go, wherever you are in the country, you have to go to London and you are a member of an inn of court, and there's four inns of, of court in, in London. Um, and you have to go to your inn of court and eat, on separate occasions, 16 dinners. That's part to, of qualification? That's part of your qualification. Dinner and time in London. And, and the, reason, the reason for that is that, that the other barristers uh, the barristers are, who have served many years at the bar or whatever can actually sit with you, you as an, uh, an aspiring barrister, and you can talk and you can, you know, gain gain their some experience, experience or, some yeah, experience from talking yeah. to um, people who have been in the profession a long time, and that was the idea of having. I think it it used to be more than sixteen, mm. but but when I did it, it was it was sixteen. But when so you go you down, to, oh, go ahead. No, when when you go down, you were in Lincoln's Inn, weren't you? Which is one of the four inns. Yeah, there's, there's, it sounds like they do a lot of drinking because they're called inns and you call to the bar. <laughs> 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 but they do do a lot of drinking. But it's not called. It was only to be sociable. <laughs> yeah. But when you go down to, and when Sally was called to the bar, you have a big ceremony and you actually get called to the bar, which is you know like the uh, the bench in the bar where where it is isn't it and you're going back into harry potter land it's five six hundred years of history in these buildings and it is i think some of harry potter was filmed in some of these uh locations weren't they all oak panels and great big paintings of famous judges and it's like you're just walking back five and six hundred years it's like the Tower of London. Wow. You know, it, it's fantastic, isn't it, Sally? So, Sally, yeah. you, you qualified as a barrister. Is that is that what happened? Yeah, I qualified as a barrister. And then um, some years later, I swapped over to be a solicitor. Um, so so I've done, I've done both. The only thing I haven't been is a judge. 
Um, but so I have been a barrister and I've, and I've been a solicitor as well. Cop to detective to barrister to solicitor. That's quite a journey. And then to podcaster. <laughs> to podcaster. <laughs> well, actually, we haven't even talked about that part of it, right? So, I mean, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, there are occasions that we ask ourselves that. Well, it, when, well, I left work first. And as usual, when you leave work and the age you are, family issues, you know, ill, and we sort of bimbled about for a few years, didn't we? You were, you were I, actually a prosecutor in the lower courts, weren't you? Yeah, the equivalent, like your district attorneys. Okay. Um, yeah. Although we're not elected like your district attorneys are, we are what's called crown prosecutors. So I was a crown prosecutor and John, John retired from work and I worked for another seven years. Um, and then as you were sort of getting ready to finish, I just, I'd never heard of podcasting. We'd, we'd said we'd probably write some books because we like investigating. You know, we like, that's what we've done all our working lives, really. So, and I just found these podcasts and I thought, well, wonder what these are all about and the crime you know went on and crime podcast and i listened to it and sally was out and when she came in we'd I'd listened to several and i said listen to these and of course it was the the normal type of format where people research read books or do some digging in the archives and then narrate story and i said we well, ought to do that but we ought to do it the way we were at work like investigate interview witnesses, interview professionals, forensic scientists, be it whatever, go to the scene of the crime, you know, walk around it, get the feel of the job. And, you know, eventually, if people are still around, we can interview the offender even. We've interviewed a murderer. Uh, and just sort of do it different, but go back to our roots. That's basic coppering, really. And that's what we, we thought, well, we'll have a go at it. We haven't got a clue how to do it. So we joined a couple of podcast groups, didn't we? And mm. then met. We're good at what we do, and but we're not we're not producers. Like podcast of groups. What do you mean? Is like a social group? Or? So yeah, we have a, a podcast clubs. Uh, do you meet in not, person? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. and I mean, COVID has played. We do Zoom meets, but the idea was prior to COVID that I mean, there's a big one in Manchester that we're involved with. So every couple of months. They'd have a meet in the back of a pub, you know, a, a room in the back of a pub and have something to drink and have guest speakers and, uh, you know, some, some, how do you raise money with your podcast? How can you improve this? And it's like a social club, isn't it? Mm. And it's really good. And we attended and found somebody to produce the podcast for us because we were clueless on that front. And we said, we can do what we can do, but we can't do the production. And that's how we started. And it's nobody else does it like us because of our backgrounds, you know, unless you're. So what does your day to day look like when you, when you are going like, um, I was listening to the man, why am I blanking on her name? What's her name? Joan Woodhouse. 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 I was listening to the Joan Woodhouse, uh, episode, uh, and you guys went actually to like the hall of records or, or something like that. And it sounded like, you might be outside and you're like, okay, so Sally, here we are at the, wherever you were. And do you guys literally just take a tape recorder with you or a digital recorder with you as you go out and investigate? Yeah. 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 We've got a digital We've got handheld, a handheld microphone. 
Zoom mic, which is goes onto an SD card. So we actually go out and walk, use the Joan Waterhouse one. We went down to uh, a castle, Arundel Castle in Sussex, and the murder was in the grounds of this castle. So we met Martin, the author of the book, who did, lived down that way. And he walked us through the route where the where she, Joan had walked when she'd gone through the town into the grounds and where she was actually murdered, the scene there. All these years later, you know, it's in the grounds of like a historic castle. And then we interviewed people and we walked around to various locations. And we we call it putting your feet on the street because when you're just doing something by audio, so when you're just doing the podcast, it's it's difficult to for listeners to imagine what you're doing. Well, when we go to the scene and we can describe it and we can, you know, you, you can you can hear the the noises. A lot of our listeners, when they've done reviews or they've or they've been to see us, have said, I really felt like I was there. And then you look on the website and we've got little videos on, yeah, on our website photos. and photos. You can then get your visual image. So it it kind of it it kind of marries that up. In the same way that that you do your YouTube channel, you're talking about your cases and you've got the videos. So people have got both of those things. Um and and we just felt that the that the podcast needed um needed us to be there so that the listener feels like they know exactly where we are and what we're doing and what happened there. Now when we were together in London, I think John, you and I were talking mm. Uh, about records. I had, I had just shown you on my website that I had like these 6,000 pages of records on this murder that happened in 2011. And you're like, you would never get those in the UK, right? You guys have different challenges when it comes to investigating old cases than we do. Mm. Yeah. I mean, our system completely, our legal system is totally different. I mean, we listened to, and it's gone out of my head now. I'm thinking the, the, the court case one, uh, serial, where mm-hmm. somebody followed a case or the court for a year in New York, I think it was, and it was a real good podcast, excellent. But I said to Sally, I says we can never do that here because you're not allowed to talk to jurors. It's a criminal offence to talk to a juror, even after the case is done. Yes, yeah, and wow. and it, it's a criminal offence for a juror to talk so, about the case that they've been adjudicating on. That. Well, jurors here in the states write. Oh yeah, books. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was interesting when CrimeCon in came to London and Nancy and Mike were involved, who, who set it up. One of our first conversations we had with them, but you know, uh, it's totally different. The, the the legal system is here is to- so different. And using the serial case, you know, they interviewed the judge, witnesses, jurors. Even while the trial was going on, well, you'd be thrown in the Tower of London over it for that, <laughs> and it's just, just not, it's not done. Yeah, we're we're very serious about the First Amendment mm-hmm. out yes. here. It's, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not <laughs> all the things that we have that are constitutionally protected. They there's also there are pros and there are also cons to those kinds mm. of things, right? But like in in 
I'm, I'm looking at this case, Ellen Greenberg case. Once a lawsuit is filed that it's out here, it's public record. Yeah. So I can go to the court and I usually have to pay the court their fee for making photocopies or scans or whatever. So it's not free. In fact, it can get really expensive, <laughs> but, but it's available because it's public mm. record. What yeah. about, is that the way it is in, in the UK? No, it's, we do have records up, you know, obviously, but the main national record, which is a queue in London, anything that's sensitive, so be it murders or uh, one of my other interests is espionage and that sort of thing. Most, if not all of them, have a time bar of 70 years, mm. and sometimes 100 years, and sometimes they never be released to the public. And, and, and the reason for that is it's protect people who survive, family, witnesses, and different things like that. But we're very, we were astounded on the Joan Woodhouse case, weren't we, that the, this big, thick police file was actually in the public records office of We've that never known that before. Never, never known that. And, and it was quite, you know, we thought, well, this, this isn't right. This, not, this isn't the way we operate. Because a lot of the people will be, and relatives will be still around. You know, and it's that's the way we we view it over here. But we are, we have got Freedom of Information now Act, which has improved it. But anything that's serious or sensitive, it doesn't get around that. And but we are. I always say that sort of in the nineteen eighties, we never spoke about MI five and MI six, our security service. Nobody mentioned it. Nobody. Admitted it, it was a member of it. Don't say yeah. its name, right? Yeah. yeah. And of course, even the heads of these departments were never publicly acknowledged. But then it slowly crept in. And of course, that opened the door for all the espionage books that have been written. And when I talked to people like, like yourself and others, I said, police and the way we do it, we would have never dreamt of doing podcasting 10 years ago, 15 mm. years ago. It just wasn't the done thing. And police officers, had written books, but it wasn't sort of the mainstream. Whereas now it's it's changing. Um, we we do the podcast. People are writing books, and it is changing. But obviously, we've got English laws that prevent the freedoms for, for information like you have. And I don't think we'll ever go down fully that route. Well, I need to stop being such a crybaby then. Like in the. In the states, every every one of the states is sovereign, mm. right? So they have their own laws when it comes to uh, when it when it comes to freedom of information. And the federal government doesn't require them to be in line with the Fed's version of uh, the Freedom of Information Act, federal one. And so sometimes when I see a case, like if it's in California, like oh, I don't even want, oh, this is going to be such a pain. I don't even want to look at it. But if it's in Nebraska or Minnesota, you know, I don't know, Iowa, man, I love those because uh, there's one state, Minnesota, where um, everything is deemed public record with the exception, there are a few exceptions that are enumerated. However, all of those exceptions expire in 30 years. So if, if I've got a cold case from 1992, I, I have access to the entire shebang. Yeah. Yeah, it's and 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 the way that that we do our podcast, because obviously we're very 
um, interview based. So we try to interview, um, as John said, suspects, experts, forensic scientists, whoever, witnesses, and and also then do discussions because that brings out our knowledge and our experience. Um, but a lot of people have have said to us, you know, where do you, where do you get your information from? And we do like we used to do at work. We just pick the phone up and we try and find people who are involved. Um, and like on the uh, one of the previous ones, which has actually got a, an American, American connection, because although the murder happened in England. She was a young lady from California, and we actually tracked down her sister in Oregon. Wow! And and her her sister gave us a you know some some fabulous um, interviews, and we also um, found the senior investigating officer. This is going back to a case in 1983. And we found the senior investigating officer who, who was now in his late 70s, early 80s. And John found him in an hour. You know, and so just it's ring just, him up. Just, yeah, just, just keep, <laughs> just keep picking the phone up and asking people, you know, do you know? Cause we, we have a, um, an association, um, National Association of Retired Police Officers. And we're all, um, a branch by by county. So if some like this one happened um, in Devon and Cornwall. in Devon and Cornwall area, so John just picked the phone up, spoke to the National Association of Retired Police Officers branch in that area, and said, you know, um, this is what we're looking into, and they said. Oh yeah, we know the we know the guy who was the senior investigating officer on that. Um, we'll get in touch with him and 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 ask him if he wants to get in touch with you. So Within so we do, so we so we don't go sort of usually different on the Joan Woodhouse case. We don't usually go um, trawling archives other than for things like newspaper articles and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. We get our our interviewees by picking up the phone. Yeah. Now you said you, you said you interviewed a murderer. <coughs> Tell me about that. Well, you, well, you need you need to um, justify that a little. Well, yes, yes, because <laughs> yeah. Well, he was he was a convicted murderer. That's he was convicted of that. murder. He was convicted of murder, and he served twenty seven years in prison. And the case was a not that far from where we live, actually. And it was uh, an old one before we've got a, what we call the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which updated the way of police procedures over here. So you had to interview them and tape record them. They had a solicitor present. <coughs> and if they had learning difficulties or mental health, you had to get them, you know, appropriate people and that sort of thing. And of course, before that, that didn't exist. So there was always the, the allegation that they'd been pressurized and they weren't capable of defending themselves, if you like, and they make admissions. So this guy, had, he, he had a reading age of... Uh, it was, he was 17 years old and he had a, a reading age of 11. This is going back to 1973. 
So, it, and it caused a big controversy uh, because he got convicted of the murder at the Crown Court and sentenced to life imprisonment, which varies in term. It's, life generally doesn't mean life, but it can be determined by the assessment of you, you at least 15 years generally. But then, depending on how you behave and what your mental state is like, if you're still a danger, they'll keep you in. But this guy had gone and got convicted, but the family said he was innocent. And it raised around 27 years. years. And mainly because he wouldn't admit, although it it got a bit muddied the waters a bit, didn't it? But the crux of the matter is that he wouldn't admit it. So if you don't admit it, they generally don't let you out. You've got to address what you've done and show that you're reforming and all Mm -hmm. the rest. And... Well, he was like, how can I admit it? I didn't do yeah. it. And the cause and the case was taken on by a local newspaper editor who who sort of got interested in it. And a, a very long story cut short, eventually, which is very hard to do over here, he got before the Court of Appeal, didn't he? Mm. And discredited some of the forensic evidence. And it was a blood spatter issue. And... The expert on the day when he was at court said the only way he got this was by bludgeoning this lady and then the spatter got on his clothes and it's consistent with that what happened that day. So that and other things got him convicted. Well, a new scientist took it on board and he disagreed. And he said, no, that's, it isn't classic or anything. It's, you know, it's been misrepresented. Um, so the Court of Appeal allowed it. They act. It was it was possible that the blood spatter that had got on his clothes was as he found the body and he was trying to administer first aid. Um and that that was his explanation of how the blood spatter got on his clothes. And what they said at the Court of Appeal was it could have been that that could have been so you, you're casting that reasonable doubt and it could yeah. have been so so therefore his conviction um was unsafe and his conviction was quashed. But he didn't say and he said it's on our on our podcast. It's the first, you know, po- first podcast, podcast we, we ever did. did. We did three episodes about it and it was the first one we did. And of course he himself, Stephen down in his name is Stephen said, they've not said I'm innocent, but they said it's not safe. So he was released after 27 years and his conviction was quashed. So there's always a question mark, did he do it or didn't he? And of course he says, well, I didn't. And other, he says, I know other people say I did, but you know, I'm out, I'm free. And when we went and visited the, the graveyard, it was in a graveyard, the murder. And of course it's going back to how we go back to the scene of the crime. Until you actually go, you don't get the feel of it. And the biggest striking thing we had was that it's an open graveyard. The public can come and go at will. There's not locked. You can just wander in and out. But there's a row of houses only 100, 200 yards from where the murder scene was in an elevated I would, position. I would, say, I would say less than, less than that. that. Less than that. And, and in the cemetery where this um, horrific incident took place, in the middle of the day, broad daylight, all along one side of the cemetery where it happened, the houses, the, the first story of the houses, all look over onto the 
onto the cemetery. So and, and, you're, and you, do you suspect sorry, you, there were witnesses? Is that what you're saying? Well, it, it was more how strange a murder would, and it was a vicious murder. I mean, she was very badly beaten, this lady was. And, but it was in lunchtime, middle of the day, in broad daylight. The public can come and wander around any moment. So somebody could have walked in the graveyard either to visit a grave or it was a shortcut to get to somewhere else. And all the windows, only wanted somebody in the window doing whatever, looking out. And you think how bizarre this location is. And, I mean, the murder took place there, there's no doubt. But just not what you, you wouldn't have got that feeling if if you hadn't visited it. If you were planning a murder, you wouldn't have decided to do it in such an open, such an accessible place in the middle of the day. Right, yeah. Well, that brings up a question because um, oftentimes, I don't know the podcast world as well as I know the YouTube world, but the ones on YouTube that have the most success, let's say financially, are Mm. the ones that churn out the most content. Yeah. Like every day or two, there's another story. Um, Yeah. You guys, and I'm kind of in the same boat as you, just can't keep that pace because we're actually we're actually trying to investigate something, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. So, I mean, I'd love your comment on that. What is, I guess, what is your plan? Is your plan to just continue to? Well, we're at a turning point, aren't we? We we did come to a turning point. I mean, Mm. we we don't earn anything from our our podcast. Um, And we came to a turning point. Well, we came to a crossroads about... A couple of weeks ago, you know, are we going to continue this or are we just going to say, we've done it for two years, we're happy, we're, we're just going to step back. And both of us uh, just sort of said, because we meet such interesting people and we also feel like if you, if you listen to the other podcasts, some of the, some of the good that we feel like we've, we've done, because we do treat people with respect. And the the lady the um the lady from America who was who was murdered in the Devon and Cornwall area, um, her sister said such a lovely thing to us at, at the end of of us talking to her, and she said, um, "I want to thank you guys for giving my sister a voice." And you know, it's only a few words, but it's incredibly powerful and. Because of that kind of reaction, and because we enjoy is not the right word because because we're we're delving into um you know right. we're delving into some pretty grim areas yeah but hard to find joy in in mm, yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely but well, we've had it several times haven't we with that sort of feeling that if it wasn't for us that lady and and she'd been living with this since you know, 30-odd years, hasn't she, mm. since her sister was murdered. And, of course, nobody was interested in her sister. It was all the guy because he came from a very wealthy family. And, of course, they were in America and the murder took place in England. And she wants to come and see us uh, over here. Then COVID's got in the way. And, of course, when – did you go to Las Vegas? I presume you did. Crime I did crime. not. No. Did you not? I, um, I have a – I don't like Las Vegas. Is I'm sorry what? for all of you who are in Las Vegas and love Las Vegas. <laughs> I'm, it's just not my favorite place in the world. Well, of course, 
when she couldn't come here or it was more difficult than Las Vegas CrimeCon, we said, would you come down and do a do a, an interview on stage and tell the story? Because I said, I'm sure I know the Americans like British cops and British people and we're different and think of Sherlock Holmes and all that. Sure. And of course, yeah. you know, it, it's it's just so different. And that's the feeling I've got when I, you know, met a lot of the Californian police. They said, oh, yeah, we love it. You know, we love talking to the English cops because it's, you know, so different. And she, she was going to come <laughs> down. Because she's so Dickensian. So Dickensian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, Sherlock Holmes is fictional, you know, it's not real. <laughs> and uh, and she was going to prepare to come down. And anyway, we went through the channels of say, you know, can we come and do this in Las Vegas? And unfortunately, for they said, yeah, we'd love it, but we've got a year's backlog because we lost the previous year. Right. So we're bringing all those people forward as well as fresh people. So this year we can't fit you in, but perhaps next year, which I think is on the East Coast somewhere, isn't Florida. it? I think it's in Orlando. Yeah, I know, oh, it's, yes. in, I know it's in Florida. So we might, we might come over then, but uh, our motivation wasn't money to do podcasting we've retired we get a good pensions over here as, as cops so it's it sort of it's not like we have to earn a living to survive mm. which a lot of people do so know, what is the, the motivation what's the motivation we, well we just tried it for something new we we're going to write books like i mentioned earlier on and we just got hooked on it to be honest and it's going back even though you retire out of the cop you never change you've still got <laughs> that desire to the thrill of the chase, finding things out that nobody else, like Joan Woodhouse. I mean, we really were shocked and pleased in the same way that we've solved this mystery of all this misinformation, this this mistelling of the story. The family were very religious people and they were writing to everybody, you know, everybody who will listen, saying that the police, it was a miscarriage of justice that this man wasn't prosecuted. But it comes back, like we said earlier, he didn't understand what the English law allowed. And what you heard in the pub doesn't make it evident. You know, if it's third hand and past, you know, been, you know, oh, it was, yeah, it's him. He's obviously done it. We know he has. That isn't evidence unless you know that or saw it. And of course, we just sort of kept, and, and we've got cases stacking up now, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when I started my YouTube journey, my, a partner at the time were like, let's see if we can find a case. And it didn't take long. We found a case that we're interested in. And then we thought, man, that, we're going to have to find all these cases. And, but I haven't had to look for a case since the very first one. No, it no. Just, it just come. But our, our change of direction, we're not change of direction. We'll always, because we did have the discussion because it does cost us money. You sure. know, we've got to travel. I'm in London for three nights, uh, travel obviously a lot nearer than yourself but you're looking you know 500 to a thousand pounds and all the travel we do here doing the investigations and i said it'd be nice just to cover our costs you know we're not here to make a living and what we've decided is that we're going to which was always another thing that we've been asked to do is to give crime talks you know to groups and uh theaters and paid entry to go yeah so We've thought about it, and we are actively doing going to do that. We've got some theatres lined up, some groups and different things. And, you know, we'll talk about our podcast in, in more detail, but that's the story. And and hopefully the talks will then... Pay for the podcast. Pay for sub, the podcast, yeah. Subsidise the, the, the podcast. But 
the the one thing that's come out of the podcast that that we didn't realize as as police officers you know when when you get you've got a serious offence you go through the investigation you get the offender he goes to court is either released or gets gets imprisoned and then we move on to the next one we we you know no sooner as one finished than we're on to the next one what we didn't realize we it's probably naive that we didn't realize it but of course members of the family of offenders and also of victims it affects them for not just their lifetime but certainly with the Jen Woodhouse one that happened in 1948 there's, we found only one relative still alive, and he told us how he he found out uh, about Joan's murder. It's affected as, him for as seven a, years as a teenager. But then other generations are told the the same yeah. story, and it's it's just that pebble dropped in the water, and the ripples just just go out. And and yeah. that, I think that's that's been the, quite striking. It they does. never move on. Yeah, and and they shouldn't. It's I, um, as I've been getting to know families of victims, there's one who I've become very close with. Her, her daughter was uh, murdered, and the and we know who did it, but the medical examiner's office ruled her death an accident. Therefore, there's no crime. So uh, anyway, she's been fighting since January of 2009 for justice for her daughter. And people keep telling her, you know, someday you'll get it and you'll be able to, mm. you'll be able to have closure. And, and I hate that word closure. Mm. Just, I just hate it so much because now that I've known Leslie for two years, um, there will never be a moment that she'll move on ever. Mm. Assuming that the case gets prosecuted and won and the person responsible punished, she's still she still doesn't have her daughter no mm. and uh, and the and she doesn't have her daughter's uh experiences maybe getting married maybe having a family having a career all those things that as a parent you live mm. vicariously through your children and you really do right you really really do she doesn't get any of that for the rest of her life and i think about the the um the Greenbergs, in their case, Ellen Greenberg was their only child. Mm -hmm. So they don't ever get that. No. Their entire life, they can't move on. And that's what we've, we have found that we've, you know, we get, like you are, you get wrapped up in the victim's feelings and, um, and it's the same with the police. I mean, we covered a case that I was involved that with. That you worked on. I worked on. And this guy had his van stolen, tried to stop it, and he ran over and killed him. And, of course, his widow had quite a bit to do with it at the time. This is going back some years. 97. 97. And, and of course, we interviewed her. And she's not moved on one day since. They were absolutely a lovely, lovely couple. And she's not moved on. And she, now she's getting quite elderly. She's in, in a mid Well, she was, when her husband was killed, she'd be... I think about 53, 54. Mm. She's now in her late 70s and she's, she still speaks so fondly of her husband, Michael, of their life together. And when, we, when we'd interviewed her, 
when we came away, I said, she hasn't moved on one minute. She still lives in 1997. And, and, and that's true. And we tried so hard. We got we got a reward from Crime Stoppers reinstated. We we got we worked with the police on it. We we did all sorts of things, but still have not got a um anybody that's been convicted uh, of so, that offence. And that and that's and that's quite hard. That begs the question, though. I love your opinion on this. If if there is no such thing as restitution for the families of these victims if that if that isn't a it doesn't happen right there's no way to pay back what was lost so why do we do it why do i i'm talking societally why do we care yeah i think i think because we do care, don't we? I mean, we all care for other people. When we live in a village, people look out for each other. You're all, I mean, the police over here, it was a family. You know, in, in our force, there's, there was only 1,800 cops, you know, which... In our uh, area. In our, well, in the force, actually. Mm. Yeah. So you sort of knew a lot of them, won't say everyone. But it is a... And it's a very... You get attached to them, and it's a human nature thing, isn't it? But you're all there as cops. You've all decided to be cops for some yeah. reason or another, right? And my yeah. guess is that you want you want to dole out or at least play your part in doling out some sort of justice. Mm. But there are some things where there just isn't enough justice. No. I, we talk about that quite a lot, don't we? I mean, yeah. you know, like you get the real nasty, violent criminals that cause a lot of heartache to a lot of people. And they go to prison, is that, I mean, obviously we don't have capital punishment over here. So the end result for a lot of people in the past, the Joan Woodhouse one, if they got, they had a suspect, but if if it got him convicted, he were hung. That was it. And you can't do any more to anybody than that. Because, because yeah. we did have capital punishment At that then. time, yes. Yeah. Um, but now it's, it's very soft. I mean, your prison's a lot harder than ours, I think. The uh, the human rights aren't the same. You know, we've got the Maxwell case that everybody's been following over here. And, of course, you know, it's it's quite brutal, that prison, by the look of it. Mm. And that, you know, it's not the same here. But So you punish prisoners a lot harder than we do, I think. The conditions are a lot That's our severe. perception. Well, our perception, yeah. So, yeah, and oftentimes our perception here in the States is they're, they're at Shangri-La. Like mm. it's funny. I, I can't speak for everybody. There are no. 300 million of us over here, but yeah. uh, oftentimes you're like, dude, what that guy did, there isn't a punishment. No. Uh, you know, strong enough. And yeah, it's, but I, I've thought about that a time or two. I, I've thought about it a lot is especially as I've gotten to know victims. Um, you know, I, I, I interviewed a young man, uh, when I first started my YouTube journey, who was the son of the fiance of the victim. Yeah. So in his mind, he was like, he's not her daughter and he understands genetics don't work this way, but he would have been, uh, her son. He would have been her son, right? That, that, that's how he 
he feels about it in, I guess, in his mind and his heart is that had my dad's fiance not been kidnapped and brutally murdered, she would be my mom. And so he feels, he feels the same, almost the same kind of love that a child feels toward their mom. And I've thought about that over and over and over again, you know, his dad died, Mm. uh, having been re- having been married late uh later on in life uh never having gotten over his fiance but found love and had family but was melancholy for the rest of his days mm. right so yeah it just that question comes to me all the time why do we do it we can't we can't get true justice in this life in a lot of cases. No, I mean, when we used to hang people over here, I mean. But it, that probably that, wasn't just us either, right? No, You're that's not. right. And what is what is the answer? And it's, it's a, what can you do? We we can only capture these people as cops and put them before the courts and the courts do with them what they will. And if they go to prison, they do. If they don't, they don't. But that's the only thing as cops we can do. And that's what you say to yourself as you're investigating mm. crimes. Like, yeah. I'm just going to do the best I can. Oh, yeah. As long as you've done the best you can. It's out of our hands when they walk in the court store. It's a different element of the criminal justice system. And yeah. sometimes we think, well, they got off lightly. They should have got a lot more. But we're just going to talk briefly, aren't we, about a, there's a gangster guy that we're dealing with. His son, the gangster's died. And he's been, because the other thing is, how do you stop people committing crime? And I've never really got an answer to that one either. And this guy's been, he got sentenced to 40 years, didn't he? Over his lifetime. He served 25 years over his lifetime. And as soon as he was in prison, all he did in prison was educate himself in the criminal world and studied law and became a very cunning man. And he was he, just planning, planning the next, next thing. Next, next you know, fiasco or, you know, the next scam or whatever it was. And he used the prison system to educate him into being a better criminal. And, of course, as soon as he came out, day one, he set his foot out the door, he was on to the next criminal activity. He did drugs, he did bank robberies, he did counterfeiting American dollars to a very high standard, a massive drug importer into the UK. And his son's written a book, and it's a brilliant book, and we're actually doing a podcast with him. And we're going to do the crime talks with him. And But I said to him, your dad was the most active criminal I've ever known. He never went to bed hardly. And he worked morning till night. He was a businessman as well, but under leg- legitimate. And he made, it, he made a lot of money legitimately. But, it, but, and, but that wasn't enough. Well, and that's... How interesting and, is that? I've always thought, like, if you are an evil genius, if you can just strike yeah. the evil part, take that genius. Oh, right. yeah. You can and, accomplish so much. Yeah. And of course, he got, because when you start, and that's the other thing I enjoy, you've got the time now and the ability to go and find these people and spend time with them, talk to them, and have a, we had, we've had a couple of days with him. And, you know, and I just said, it's so interesting. He said, well, my dad got a lot of satisfaction out of being one up on the cops and the courts and trying to outwit them. For him. Yeah, and it was a, it was a sport. Wow! And, and I said, well, the interesting thing of that, your dad's like that, 
And I said, oh, and I joined as a young cop. We had a very, very good senior officer. And he saw me one day and he said, you know, oh, you've joined the police and, you know, hope you do all right and this, that and the other. And he'd done a lot of high profile criminal cases. And he said, I'm going to tell you one thing and it's true. He said, the hunting of man by man is the greatest sport of all. And, and you do. And that's why possibly we do the podcast because it's the thrill of the chase and, and, you know, trying to outwit the criminals. But when we see the gangster's son, he says, that's what my dad was, but he was doing it the other way. He was trying to outwit you from catching him. I, I never got involved in him when I was at work. It, it wasn't anywhere in our area, but, uh, and that was his motivator. A lot of it was money, of course, but he enjoyed, and he used to get off big cases at court by, you know, outwitting everybody. And he says, I think he enjoyed it. And of course, I said, And he well, used to give his money away. <laughs> oh, he was charitable too. <laughs> charitable. <laughs> the making of money, whether legitimate or not, was not for for the com- for his comfort or the comfort of his family. Yeah. Um, you know, his son said uh, said that he said to him one day, Dad, where's your car gone? And he said, oh, the guy down the road really needs a car and he hadn't got one, so I'll give it to him. I've given my well, car. Is this like a modern-day Robin Hood kind of well, a situation? Well, yeah. We, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, yeah, and it's really – But the, coming to the question, I said to him, I said, well, how do we stop people like your dad committing crime? Because he's got caught. He got away with a, a massive amount more than what he got called for. But we've imprisoned this guy. He got married four times. He married one of his wives in prison and got divorced in prison. And I said his life was sort of just this chaotic life that a normal person wouldn't put up with. But he thrived on it. And and he says, well, he wasn't bitter against the police at all. It was just, you know... It's part of, of the sport. Occupational hazard, hazard going to uh, prison. But I said that, you know, when I joined 40 odd years ago and all successive governments were going to get tough on crime, we're going to stop criminality, we're going to stop serious crime, and they haven't. And I said, but nothing would have stopped him. The only then, way to stop him would have hung him, but you couldn't, you couldn't do that. <laughs> and there is a uh, so there is a certain percentage of society that probably feel that way that are going to be criminal. There's mm. no rehabilitation, right? They're just, they yeah. just like it. Let me, let me go back to what you're saying though, that the hunt of man by man is the greatest sport of sport all. Is of that all. What you said? Yeah. Sally, I mean, did you feel that as a, as a cop? Did you feel like you were hunting people? And I suppose to a, to a certain degree, you, you feel like you, you feel like you're on the, on the hunt, but I suppose when you know the victim, if it's if it's a burglary, if it's a robbery and you've got victims, or if it's a murder and you've got a victim, or to rape, you've got a victim. For that, for that victim, this is gonna this is going to impress upon them and change their life forever. I want to do anything within my power and my colleagues' power to bring that person to justice. And and then when when you've done everything you can, when you have when you have done every single thing that you possibly can, and there isn't that result at the end of it, 
that is, you do feel like you failed. And that's why um, the podcast that John was talking about, the, the guy that was run over by the thief who stole his his van and his wife never moved on from 1997. That's why even to this day, John still talks about that. Because it's, there's no, there is no resolution and, and there is no, there is no comfort. There is no relief for not just his widow, but for his, his son who is now married and has children of his own. Um, and those children know of their granddad that they've, that they've never met. And so it goes down the generations. Whereas if somebody had been brought to justice for, for killing Michael Pritchard, his family would have would have would have gone on, hopefully, with some amount of of relief or not as much anxiety. For, for the rest of their lives. I mean, it, it's difficult to quantify, isn't it? But if yeah. you feel like you have done 110%, but you've not come to the result that you wanted to get to, um, yeah, it, it, hmm. you do feel like you failed, don't you? Oh, absolutely. But, of course, we know when you're working a case, you get the people like this gangster guy who's a clever, intelligent man and he's pulling every stunt in the world to stop getting caught. And he knows what we're doing. He knew he was under surveillance. He knew he was being booked. He knew there was undercover cops into him because he was savvy enough to see it. And they've played him off. You know, it, you know, he got caught, as we say, for some of it. But when he talked to his son and he said, yeah, it was, it was a drug, adrenaline, you know. Didn't stop his behaviour. Didn't stop him. And and really, when I you know we all policemen are different, but when you talk to people at work, as I did, and it is it, it is you get a buzz out of the chase and putting your case together, finding witnesses, interviewing people, you know, making inquiries, phone calls, and you know, and slowly building a, a like a jigsaw together until the day comes when you pounce, and of course, and you, you actually have people congratulate you. You know, people who have been yeah. arrested. You know. Oh, really? Uh, You're like, oh, you oh, yeah. finally got me. Well you got done. me. Yeah, finally got me. <laughs> <laughs> and and they shake and still and I still see them, some of them in the street, don't we, mm. Sally? And you know, they say you still John. sees people that you oh, have yeah. busted. Oh yeah. And uh, and some of them, you know, well, don't talk to you, but others will just say Well, we we were very briefly, we we were we were walking <laughs> in um our local city. And we were we were walking back to the car after being shopping, and and coming towards us is this very elegant, very tall, slim, well dressed man, and and he he stopped and he said, "Oh, Mister Mid, Mister Mitchell," I shook his hand, you know, and they they had a little chat, and I thought, "Oh, it, this is obviously some some friend that I don't know about." Anyway, he the guy said, "Well, it, it's lovely to meet you," and I, you know. Uh, and cheerio and as he walked off I said to John who's that and he'd, he'd worked on a fraud case that I always referred to the offender as Mr Euro reversible trouser bonds 
Because if there was ever such a thing, this was the guy to sell you on. Um, so it was a con man. (laughs) And, and as he walked up, John said, that's Mr. Reversible, Euro reversible trouser bonds. And it's like, no way. Cause he, he went to prison for, for a good few years. years, Um, and then he's, he's just stood in, in, you know, in the middle of the street, shaking hands with John and telling him how, how lovely it is to see him. <laughs> you said that is, I've never thought about those kinds of things at all. I wonder, does that, I mean, that happens to cops. That would happen. Oh, yeah. 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 It's probably not every day, but it happens no, no. more than I, once. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they, they're at it, as we call it over here, meaning the committing crime, be it burglaries, thefts, whatever. And it's a sport. And one day, they win and other days we win and that's when you talk to you know the gangster's son he says that's how my dad viewed it it was you know some days i get away with it and they've not got me and i know they're there i know they're about because i just know and they didn't get me and other days and in the end i mean they must have a huge resources they put into catching on a european scale and millions and millions of pounds and they got him and of course Oh, well, I'll do my time and go to the next. (laughs) 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 And and on one case, he got off a big case. It was five months and cost a lot of money uh, at our Crown Court. And he won. And the the senior officer who was involved was so miffed that the villain, the gangster guy, goes up and says, no hard feelings, and puts his hand out, so he'd shake it. And he didn't. The policeman didn't do it. He turned around and went. He, you know, he was upset. And he never forgot it. He said, and he says to his son, he says, that's not very sporting, is it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> he says, if they got me convicted, I'd have shook his hand and says, your boys did a good job. Well, uh, yeah, you know, he saw it as a sport and the police saw the victims and stuff like that, right? Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that's so interesting. I'm... Uh, We've we've been talking for a while now, and I could do this for hours and hours and hours. Oh, yeah. But I do have one other subject that I want to ask you guys about. Since you uh, since you are retired cops, and uh, in Sally's case, a retired lawyer, right? So um, this idea that there are that there are bad people in every profession, uh, cops are are not immune to having bad guys in their ranks. Mm. Tell me what your thoughts on uh, in the States right now. Uh, there's been a big movement. It's been a long movement now, several years um, that is really kind of anti-police. Um, I don't know that that's really a fair uh, characterization, but just for the sake of this, this conversation it is really uh, there's been the, and it's coming from actually both sides of, of the political spectrum, whether it's a um, defund the police on the left, or there's this whole activity of auditing the police on the right, right? There's this mistrust of police. I would love your thoughts on, um, you know, the idea that there are bad cops and what does that, you know, what does that do to our system? What does that mean to our system of justice? Well, it's a subject. How many days have we got, Gavin? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a subject that I follow, and I read quite extensively on that. And there's some very good books over here about going back, you know, uh, in the past, but to the present, you know, about corrupt police. And 
you know, we've had the terrible case in London last year, year before, where that cop murdered the girl. Uh, Cousins, his name was, the police officer. And he stopped the girl and in COVID and asked her why she was out, because obviously it was the, co- the curfews were on, and basically kidnapped her, raped her, and killed her. And, you know, you think, my God, what are we coming to? And eventually, of course, the Met Police had to, they were onto him very quickly. So they actually investigated one of their own very quickly and, and caught him. And, but corruption's everywhere, in every job, in every walk of life, no matter what it is. It's just that some people, and I always look at bent cops, I've worked with bent cops, you know, we've caught some of our own. Nothing like a murder, but, you know, the, the, they've done things, criminal activities. Um, a lot of them were human beings, like anybody else. They have marital problems, they have drink problems, they have drug problems, they have financial problems. And if it all comes together at once, it just triggers them to try and get themselves out of a mess that they know they're in. So they do stupid things. And there's mental health problems, you know. Sure, this cousin's guy must have had some kind of problems. But it's everywhere. You know, you, you, I'm sure in America, you know, you turn the telly on and there's some somebody in some job that should be respected and, you know, behave properly. They've, they've done something wrong. And, and of course, it comes the difference back- with, with the law is that there, we're, um, we are enshrining power. We're oh, enshrining, that's the wrong yeah. word. But no, no. these people have been given power. And in, oh, yeah. in some cases, it's the power up to the taking of another person's life, right? Oh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That's the amount of power that we're giving. I, I went, um, I don't talk about this very often because I'm a little bit ashamed of it, but I, um, I qualified for the Nevada Highway Patrol Police Academy and uh, was about to go when I was offered my dream job. And so I declined the Academy, but that was one of the things that they told us in the whole interview process, which took seven or eight months, maybe nine months that we're trying to filter out the people that we don't think Mm. are, uh, are trustworthy with the power that we're, that we're giving you. So how do we, how do we filter out the wrong folks? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because the the thing with the police is that you're trained to catch people. So if you if you're so inclined, those skills you can deploy to avoid being caught. And it's very difficult to catch cops in many cases, and takes a lot of time, effort, and there's whole departments. I'm sure there is in in the states of America, and that is their job: try and catch bent cops. Be it you know, taking yeah. money, doing crime, or intimidating women like this guy down London was. Um, he was a sex offender, you know. But it takes a lot of time and 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 to get get to sort of home in on them, really. And my personal experience is that I've dealt with lots of folks, and when you've talked to some of the prisoners, they're very helpful. They'll tell you about all the criminals' activities and all the rest of it. And the question I always ask is, Tell me about bent cops, because if I find one, I'll be, I'll make sure we catch him. And I don't think I've ever had a reply <laughs> that that we could act on. 
you know, mm. they'll say, oh, well, there's a so-and-so is a bit dodgy and whatever. But I says, no, I want evidence. You know, we want a lead on where, what's going on. And it's difficult to get an in. Um, and of course, now we use technology. You've been doing it for years over in America, but, but now we deploy it a lot over here. And there is, it, I'm sure the public don't believe when you say, well, you know, it's full of bent cops. I'm sure there, well, there is bent cops, uh, but to catch them is very up on the list because we don't want them like anybody else. And we've been involved in a few things off and on, haven't we? But there's a lot of effort goes in. But actually, if somebody asked me, have you actually seen anything in particular? Certainly not been involved in anything because they, they obviously, and of course, they congregate together as well because, you know, they'll suss that they're having trouble. They've got money problems. They've got drink problems and, and, and sort of. They just the, naturally gravitate grab, to one it, Yeah, I think so. But I, th- I think the other thing is that um, the police force reflects the society that it mm. serves. And, and living in where, wherever, wherever you live, you know, if somebody who lived next door did something really horrendous or horrific, you would say, well, who'd have thought that would have happened here? Or who would have thought that would, that guy, you know, who's, who's married with two kids and got a nice job and a nice car and who thought that he would do something so, so grievous against somebody else. And that's the same in the police force, you know, a, a police officer, you, a rogue police officer, and everybody sort of says, how, how did he come into our ranks? How did, how did we let him in? In the same way that you can say, how did I live next door to this person? So I, so I do think that the, that the, that the police force and lots of other organizations reflect the, um, the public that they, that they serve. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's, we people, there's human nature, and we all are going to react differently to different stimuli, right? We're gonna. Um, I, I think about here in the states, you know, the whole thing down. Well, I think about the George Floyd incident, for mm. example, right? Mm. Up until that point, everybody involved probably was pretty okay. Well, not not Chauvin; he had he had issues, but you know, th- sometimes you go along and, and you are doing great in life. And then you come to a crossroads where you're asked to go one way or another. Mm. And that's when you see your, your, you know, your true colors. It's uh, yeah. Sometimes I guess what I'm saying is I, sometimes the people that end up being the biggest villains, aren't the ones that are bent the whole time. They are just the ones that are prepared. Like, Something has prepared them, and at that crossroads, they're going to make the wrong choice. Yeah. And I think over here, uh, we've gone, and I, I don't know what police are paid in America, how that sits with you know the general economy, but we've gone from, when I joined, it was a very low-paid job, and mm-hmm. a lot of people left, but for an 80-and-a-half-year-old on your first job, it was a job. And we got some big pay rises because they're trying to retain the staff. Then we've had cutbacks and it's it's gone up in a big arc and it's coming down the other side over the last 10 years, hasn't it? Where they're not paid that well now. And and of course, if you're paid well and you can support your family, you don't need to do anything to supplement your income. 
if you're on the breadline, and some of them are, you know, you know, we've got cops that, to, well, in, when I joined, they were on benefits, some of them. You know, if you've got a family with a couple of kids, you, you got extra pay because it, you, your wage wasn't enough. And that then puts temptation in the way. And, and as I always like Oscar Wilde saying, I can resist everything except temptation. And it's true, you know. And no, if you are on the line like that and you make a bust that has cash involved that you could easily slip into your pocket, then that that puts you down the road, right? You take it, and And of course, on that road, we've—I mean, I've been in thousands of people's houses over my thirty years. But you go to all sorts of incidents where old people have died and they're in the house. You're the only one there, and. All their belongings and worldly goods are lying in front of you. And they could be huge. I mean, sometimes one of the patients, how much money did they have in the house? That the wage package. Oh, yeah, this in in the days when um people used to get a proper wage packet, he always um he never opened any of his wage packets because he he got another income stream, a legitimate income stream. Oh, so it was cash like in an envelope. So it was cash yeah, in an yeah. in an envelope. So on a Friday, he'd go and get collect his wages and and they give him her um his little brown envelope with his money in and he never opened them and he just used he just used to he he had like a little cupboard under the stairs and he used to just open the door and throw the packet in there and oh, wow and he he had a burglary and um and they they'd been through the house and when when the officers went, he said, "Thank goodness they didn't they didn't find my wages." So they said, "Oh, I, you know, have you just been paid this week?" And he said, "Well, no. For the last for the last few years, I've been, you know, um, popping my uh, my wage packet in the cupboard under the stairs. So, so we got all this packet, and it was some I can't remember the exact figure now, but it was something like fifty seven thousand pounds." And it this was on a Sunday, and all the banks and and the building societies were closed, and uh, and one of our police bosses rang up the bank manager of of one of the banks and said, "Can you come out because we've got this stack of cash and I just don't want to leave it in the police station." And then, and the guy turned out and and opened wow. an account opened an account for this for this guy and. And and stashed his money and that in. That was a long the, time ago. And that's a long time ago. Yeah. So it's probably like something like that's a, sort of a, late eighties. Yeah, is. hundred to oh. two hundred thousand pounds in real today's money. Yeah. But I mean, wow. as a as a as a, and you took it and opened it all up because, of course, you've got to be so careful because of allegations of money going missing, and you know, be that by mistake or or deliberately, yeah, they opened it up and counted it all on a big billiard table. There was that much money. And but if you've got a cop that was was not straight, I mean, if you you know a packet or that, two, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So the opportunities are, are almost daily, aren't they? Yeah, the opportunities if if you're stupid enough or desperate enough to do it. So desperation is probably the yeah yeah key there, right? Yeah, I've looked at this case here in the states, and I brought it up a couple of times as we've been talking. It's the Ellen Greenberg case where. Um, there was a lot of corruption, but I think it all started with the po- the police who were understaffed in the middle of a blizzard, who thought that they 
kind of fallen into this is definitely a suicide before the body got taken to the medical examiner's office. And rather than one stab wound, there were 20, right? I, I think that it was just negligence or incompetence or it was a bad day. Mm. <laughs> it was a hard day. Mm. I mean, and, and then I think the, um, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. The problems got worse and worse and worse as they tried to cover up the little things that happened in the beginning. Does that sound like something that could be, do you think I'm on the right track? When, is that something that's plausible? I guess. Oh yeah. Well, when I'm not familiar with the actual case, was there corruption that they, they were messing with the evidence? Was it disappearing? Or? Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll make this really brief, but check this out. Um, the official story goes that uh, uh, there's this young man, young woman, they were engaged to be married. They're living together in an apartment in an upscale part of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Uh, he goes down to the gym at the apartment building, comes back up. The door is locked, he says, with one of these bar locks that I'm showing you right here. You know, like in the hotel, mm, yes. bar locks. Yeah. Um, he says he breaks down the door and he finds her inside, calls 911, and uh, the police come out. He says that um, he tried to get the apartment building to open the door for him and that it was like the security guard at the apartment building watched him break down the door. But what it turns out is that he is a member of a very wealthy and very connected family in Philadelphia going back many generations. And before he called 911, he called his lawyer cousin and talk, then talked to his judge uncle, both of whom were on site, one of which arrived before police even arrived, <laughs> right? But when, when the uniforms got there, they saw a girl on the floor with a knife in her chest and fiance says he had to break down the door. They go to the balcony. There are no footprints in the fresh snow. She was definitely alone. It's a suicide. But then when it gets to the medical examiner's office, she's been stabbed in the back of the head and neck 10 times. You know, so anyway, it's one of those that where I feel like it was a hundred year blizzard. The uniforms really didn't. Do, oh, and then what happened is the apartment complex calls the police and said, what do we do about this crime scene? And they're like, here's the number of a crime scene cleanup company. They cleaned it up the following morning before there was even a warrant to go in and actually collect forensic evidence. It had been cleaned by a professional crime scene cleanup. Mm. I, I did look at that because I saw on your site, I just yeah. couldn't picture which case it was. There's a, there's a, a x-ray of the girl, isn't it? With the stab or a simulated. Yeah. They took um, the, they took the autopsy photos yeah. and did like a 3d rendering. But the medical people said it was suicide, didn't they? They first said it was homicide. Uh -huh. And then the medical examiner was called into a meeting with the Philadelphia police who convinced him that she was alone. And that's when he changed it to suicide. Mm -hmm. So, by the way, that, that meeting, there's no record of it. No. Yeah, because we... So, so, so it goes on. Yeah, yeah, it just kept going and going and going. Like that, I, that's not one set of circumstances, and then it 
the job starts getting done properly thereafter. That's like one one suspicious outcome after another, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's weird. Yeah. I mean, we have similar things over here, haven't we? We have had, we have yeah. had where, you know, and when you, which is another area of massive interest is, you know, when you get medics, forensic scientists, experts, it's an opinion. Yeah. And it's, you know, like a fingerprint expert, a DNA hit, a fingerprint expert, I've got it wrong. And there's some very big cases over mm-hmm. here where they've said that X is the murderer or X is the offender and they've been convicted and sent to prison. One was a solicitor. Mm. And, uh, and of course, eventually, other evidence and other experts have looked at it and disagreed. It's a very grey area, forensics and medics are. And, you know, it's, it, 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 we've got many cases, haven't we, where I think they've I've- been wrong. They've been wrong. I think people like to think that forensic things like like DNA and um and and that kind of thing is very black and white. It either was him or it wasn't. And it's not it's not that it's not that easy, it's not that simple. That that line is is a little bit blurred. And sometimes we need to take a step back and just say, you know, it's not quite as clean cut as it appears to be. Well, I mean, our Stephen Downing case, I mean, the blood spatter evidence really in a jury's eyes, this man, the expert. That's what convicted him. That's what convicted yeah. him. And of course, all those years later, it was in doubt. And and we we could talk for days on, on these sort of things. But, and I've got, well, it's fact that you're only as good as the police officers that turn up. And on day oh, on a good day you get the eight team, and on the bad day you might get the C team. But well, that and- is a, that's interesting because I've been told that a couple of times that mm. in this place where Ellen died, they don't get homicides. No, they don't get them. It's a nice place. Yeah. They had it had been three years or something like that since the last time somebody had been murdered. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and the way I'm thinking of it is like in the beginning it was just they weren't there wasn't malice. They were just making mistakes. Yeah. But ultimately, because this young man is part of a politically connected, very powerful family, they yeah. were able to take those mistakes and really turn them into something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a bit like our case in Arundel, isn't it? That, you know, the that was the allegations made that the police had, because in, living in the castle is a duke, you know, a very senior, almost, you know, a few places below the royal family and you know this the offender was supposedly allegedly and rumored to be an illegitimate child of the duke so that's why the police didn't go and do a good job and of they course didn't want to offend the duke well yeah or he's pulled strings or he's you know muddied the waters or whatever oh well, that's interesting because it could be one of those two extremes or somewhere in between where He's the nefarious plotter who's pulling strings, or it could be these innocent police officers over here really just don't want to get on the wrong side of this. Right. right? And of course that was the story that, that was told that, uh, you know, it was, that it was just a a mess from start to finish, if you like. And that's when we got involved and we said, well, you know, to the author, where's this information? Where's this? Well, everybody, it's one of those, everybody knows, but where are, is it recorded? Where is hard evidence for 
all these things. And, and of course, when we went to the record office it, and you read and knew what you were reading, it was uh, nobody could have done any more other than the fact that they just didn't have enough evidence that was admissible. And, and a se senior barrister, actually, opinion was on it because that's what we do over here. You know, if you've got one that's you're not sure whether there's, there's enough evidence to escalate it up to a senior guy who's, you know, QC or Queen's Council, and they specialise in murders and major crime. And his report was on it, and he just said, there is nothing you could have done that you haven't have done, and lists all the reasons why there wasn't enough evidence. And the bottom of the line is, I think you're right, he is probably the man, but there isn't any evidence, enough evidence. Admissible. Admissible evidence. evidence. And game over. And of course, all these people that were selling these things about the cover-up, and I said, I've actually been and read any of this. Well, no, we haven't. Well, don't you think you ought to go and read it before you start <laughs> rumour-mongering? Right. And, I mean, one, one of the things that was said, because uh, in the first investigation, um, the senior investigating officer, it's always been said that um, he got the sack because he didn't get a result at the end of that case. In actual fact, the reality of, of it was he was promoted after that and he retired. And, and that's, so that's the truth of it, but that, that probably doesn't make a good story. But, but the, as I've said, this, this myth that is perpetuated through the years that, that these are the things that, that happen, the unwillingness or the inability. And then, you know, and, and, and we went right back to day one and read through the whole lot. And, well, that's not actually what happened. And, of course, then the people, oh, well, oh, well. But, <laughs> I'll move back, on. I'll give you another thing. <laughs> yeah, moving on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the, uh, but going back to what you've been told is true. I mean, we could name senior police officers that we've worked with. And if they turn up, you're on to a You're winner. on a good one. Because they are committed, they're thorough, they're professional, they're very experienced. And they motivate the people around them. And interesting, this one with like Joan Woodhouse, going back all those times, the, the little police force, we had many, many police forces in those days. You know, there was small or large towns had their own police force. Now we're in counties and amalgamated. It, it's a nationalised police Nation force. Now. Yeah. And of course, that's why Scotland Yard used to come out to these provinces because they'd highlighted that they hadn't got a clue what to do because there was so rare there was any major crime or murders. I mean, there were domestic stuff, like husband and wife fall out and one stabs the other or whatever. And they're quite straightforward. But if it's a, you know, a dead body in the middle of nowhere like this, and it's all very grey what's happened. So they brought the system in that the chief constables of these areas could ring Scotland Yard and say, we need the murder squad. And they used to come down and take charge of it and, you know, put in place all their experience. So, and we, we talked to another podcaster, don't we, in Canada. Mm. And, and his sister had been, well, she, would, she was found dead, mm. suspected to have been murdered, and he genuinely believes that. But the same thing. They were very, in, you know, out-the-way police force that hadn't got a clue what to do. 
and almost identical. They'd messed all the evidence up. They'd, they'd messed the forensics up. They'd lost some of it. Um, and and it, it does happen. And then, of course, like anybody else, when they realise that perhaps it's all gone horribly wrong, they start covering it up even more because they're going to get sacked or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. So, but it's all, that what you've described is almost similar mm. or identical to the one we talk about, isn't it? Almost similar or identical. Well, yeah. Well, that covers that, that it. Was, one that of the was two. every base, doesn't it, really? <laughs> so definitely, no, maybe. That's right. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a case that I looked into a little while ago that was in Texas where um, this young woman was working as a prostitute. And she was, she was an attractive young woman, blonde, and she was found by her pimp in her apartment with her throat cut, laying face down on the bed blood all over the floor right when the call goes out to the houston pd the scene is just swarmed with uniformed officers that just really want to see this yeah like this is this is a grotesque it's like a train wreck they just all want to just kind of take a look at it well so there were something like a hundred uniformed officers marching around in there traipsing around through everything before yeah. a single detective got in there and cleared everything out. And by that yeah. point, all the evidence was so just, uh, what do you call that? Contamination. Uh, contaminated, mm-hmm. yeah, by all of the men that had been in to see this naked blonde prostitute with her throat slit. Yeah. It's like, ah, guys. Yeah. And, it, and it, the sad fact is that, yeah, I mean, over here, like I mentioned before, we're, they're not getting paid right. There's not a lot of experienced cops about. I mean, we've got some good, like, murder squads in the Met. In fact, it was at CrimeCon, Colin Sutton, who, mm-hmm. you know, did, did some fantastic cases, mm-hmm. Colin. But, and they've got dedicated teams, but we lost a lot of experience and a lot of command as well. You know, we've cut the senior officers down to save money over, over many years. And, of course, you know, when we describe being picked because of the performance and the boss has seen your paperwork, that doesn't happen now because there isn't they're not there. There's not the numbers, so it's 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 not a good place to be in, is it, Sally? We we talk about it, don't we? And you you, you we had a good police career because there were some fantastic dedicated, and one particular chap who we won't say who it is, but if he was involved, his staff and we all everybody's had the feeling. You know, you'd do anything for that man. You know, you turn up first thing in the morning, not go home till last thing, because that's what he did. And it went on for days and long, these long-running murder cases. You know, he, he just commanded that respect, didn't mm-hmm. he? And most forces had some similar sort of people, but sadly, there's not that. And you learn from people like that. You learn from your peers. Well, if you haven't got that experience, and you're a new cop and, and people that you're working with haven't got that experience, who are you going to learn from? Um, and that's kind of the, the demise. I'm not decrying anything that any of any people have done. Uh, that, that, pe- that people have done. You know, pe- people are trained and, and they work under the system that, that they've got. And no doubt a, ma- a majority uh, of officers um, do the very best that they can uh, under difficult circumstances and and 
you know, I, I salute them for that. Um, but people don't realise how the, much work goes in to these cases. They only see, you know, somebody pleads guilty to murder in the paper or on the telly and he got sentenced to life imprisonment. But it doesn't explain that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours yeah. and a lot of people put all that jigsaw together to get him to court oh. to plead guilty because we've got the evidence. And and that's one thing that we, we again, in our podcast, explain that, you know, all this goes on behind the scenes that you never see. You know, you see the the, the highlights, the, the the television media coverage, and and that's it. But, you know, cases that are long-running ones where you have to work, the effort that goes in is people wouldn't By do so it. many people yes. over so, such a long period yes. of time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's actually, I kind of feel maybe I need to repent a little bit because I'm so used to seeing botched jobs as I'm looking mm. in. That, that's yeah. kind of my shtick, right? I'm looking yeah. at things that are botched. Yeah. So I tend to think that I'm like a hammer. Everything's a nail, right? I tend to think that everything is botched, but there are, that's probably the just tiny minority of cases, good good detectives, good cops out there doing. doing mm. I mean, the, the guy we've in Canada, he, He's really got a bee in his bonnet about this this sort of series of of murders he's been looking at, and you know we see it from yeah, I'm sure it happens. We've 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 been around the block to know that it does happen. You know, you're only as good as the team that plays on the day, and uh, you know there is mistakes, there is poor policing, there's people who haven't got a clue what they're doing, and but not everybody. everybody you know, yeah, you know it's it's that it's it's that. Um, it's that thing that if you've got one bad apple, everybody everybody is rotten, and and it, it's not. That might be just a standalone apple. Um, you know, the whole system isn't infected. So, so I, I think you have to take it on a case by case basis. Mm. I mean, I mean, we've we've looked at cases that we've that we've thought, how on earth did this? You know, how on earth did did we get? they get in this mess um and then there's other ones that you think oh it started off as a mess well actually and then you find out what what was happening behind the scenes and what led to that decision or what led to mm. um to that happening and and you realize that actually it's not it's not all down to what human error or no. or or an inability, I keep talking about an inability or an unwillingness to, to do something. It may just be the, the circumstances that that person or those group of people found themselves in. Mm-hmm. But Joan's case, we go, keep going back to because we approached that. We read all this and heard all this about this, that it not adding up, and there's all these reasons why the police didn't do a good job. And we said, well, if that's what we find, that's what we will say. You know, we'll agree with, you know, if we find bad practice and bad things and, and things that don't add up. But immediately, there's a couple of cops, uh, the, the Scotland Yard detectives have written a book, and the pathologist, a bloke called uh, Simpson, who was a very eminent pathologist in his day, he wrote his, a book as well. And in it was Joan's case. And there was things there that on the first glance, I said, there's something wrong with this case because the book's, without going into it, don't make sense. There's contradictions, there's, you know, there's things that aren't right. 
So I'm suspicious that something's gone off and it's, and it's, you know, we'll, we'll find out on our journey when we go and dig into it even more. And, and a, a lot of it was misquoting of the detectives and the, mm. and the, and the um, pathologist took umbrage about it because they hadn't complained. They thought it was a suicide, somebody had said. And, of course, the pathologist says, no, it wasn't. It was clearly a murder and gives his reasons and all the rest of it. And in reality, we don't know where that quote came from. It was in some other book that he must have heard about and was nothing to do with the senior Scotland Yard guys. Mm. And, and it, you know, and it, until you look at it, you've got to be open-minded. So those two episodes on Joan Woodhouse, it's, it starts off as being, this is what we know. And then it's like, but actually it's not sitting well with us. There's something not quite right here. And as we go on, you, you go with us on, the, on our dis- journey of discovery as to, well, this is, this is what really happened and, and, and this is where it told us that this is what happened. So, so it starts off thinking that you know the story uh, and, and the book that was um, brought to us by the author, we thought the story was the book, but actually the book was just the start of the story. That's cool. And we've left the door open as well, haven't we? Because yeah. with my espionage hat on, that at that oh, time, yeah. just after the war, yeah. the south coast of England was a hotbed of espionage. And, uh, you know, was this lady taking some dispatches from, because she worked in London, which is a possibility. And we've got a friend who was really involved in that sort of espionage uh, field. And, you know, he says, it's not beyond the possibility that she did work for the security services because the women did. You know, she was a professional lady. She was a librarian, very good with obviously filing and all that sort of thing. So it, it spun off again. And he, 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 on the first telling her when we discussed it, he says, I think she might have been working for the. So did she go on that reason down there? And who knows why she was murdered? So it opens all the doors as well. And Wow. Well, that's fun. Well, thank you guys, John and Sally. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. It's good to meet you in London. And uh, I'm going to do like a full outro and all that sort of stuff, but uh, let people know where to go and, and everything. Thank you very much for, for the conversation. We've been at this two hours. Oh, we could go again <laughs> if you want. <laughs> I, All right. I could tell you the story about um, when I was on when I was doing my uh, CID training. We, you go on a ten week course, and oh, yeah. and I had a sergeant who who was uh, who taught taught uh, a lesson on the Friday afternoon. I came home uh, and then went back to my course on the on the Sunday night, and the sergeant had been locked up for. Um, conspiracy between Friday and Sunday, and what he'd done was he was uh, having an affair with a lady who was who was the wife of a, a very well known um, businessman? Question mark. Um, <laughs> wow. They're all at it, <laughs> and and he had gone out into it was from the Greek community, and he'd gone out into the Greek community. 
to try to find somebody to bump her husband off. And the guys that he, he spoke to thought, is this some kind of setup? Because this, go, this guy's a, a police sergeant. So that so they went to the police and, and said what the sergeant had told them. So they set him up with um undercover cop. And on the Friday, when he'd finished the lesson and all the students, all as lot came came home, he went to a local hotel with ten thousand pounds in a briefcase oh, no. to pay the hitman who turned out to be an undercover cop. Wow. And it spins again, doesn't it? Because when we started doing CrimeCon, this is the wait, second. Wait a minute. Hold on. Let's not move on just for a second. No, John. But like, yeah. the, this was when you were on track for your CID. Is that what you're saying? You were. Yeah. I w- Before you got on CID, you had to go on a 10 week training course. Um, <laughs> so he was one of the law and, and And he was, he was one of the people that was, that was teaching on, on the course. And in actual fact, what the, was he teaching? Please tell me he was teaching some sort of like legal ethics or something. He was like he was he was teaching what is called incohate offences, which includes conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. That is that is too precious. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was Friday, and you go on Monday and you ring me up and he says, You never believe it. The instructor's been arrested and gone, of course. And and of course the undercover cop, we we didn't know who it was. We didn't course, know who it was then. Hence he wouldn't have been an undercover cop, would he? Right. <laughs> so, but years later, he wrote a book. And in it is this case, was one of his cases that he's covered. And at CrimeCon, the first one last year, he was down to he's well known, he's on telly over here a lot. It's called Peter Blexley, isn't mm. he? Blex is called. Uh, who we've never met, uh, was going to come and do a talk at CrimeCon. So I rang Nancy up, one way or another. And of course, I said, uh, and I I rang, spoke to him. And I said, uh, I'm after an undercover cop to give us some background on how you operate and what you do and all the rest. And I said, just out of an aside, out of complete interest, do do you remember this case? He said, oh, yeah, I do. He says, well, my wife, who was involved in the podcast, was one of the pupils in the class on the Friday when you appeared over the weekend and posed as a hitman and arrest well got him arrested and I, and, he, and of course he couldn't believe it and he it was he says oh well we must meet up at CrimeCon when we come down and and of course it didn't happen because it, it of got COVID. put back to September COVID, yeah. so yeah and he so, couldn't make the September one so yeah so it's yeah small world wow. All right, guys, we got to wrap it up. Let's yeah. call it good. We could do this for hours, but uh, thank, thank you, John. Thank you, Sally, for joining me on my very first Your yeah. Favorite True Crime podcast episode. You, I appreciate it. You are more than welcome. And if anything, you know, you, I mean, we, we've got a real nice community over here. I mean, obviously, you met quite a few of them in London. And we all help each other. And, you know, uh, the... Is there anything you need for over here? Just, you know, give us a shout. Yeah, um, right back at you. Yeah, and, and of course, we, we, we went to CrimeCon New York before. We didn't even know London was in the, in the making. Try and find somebody who did podcasting to, 
to get and try and find the lady in Oregon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it, it's, uh, you know, what we can, in fact, the guy in Canada has been in touch this last week mm. or so, hasn't he? Yeah. Once uh, favoured her in over here. And and we've done it with Australia. That that same case, the, the lady from America who married the English aristocrat. That's a good one to listen to. Michael Tellin, his name. I'll have a uh, listen. As, as, you've prob- as you've probably realised, if talking was an <laughs> Olympic sport, John would be a gold medalist. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me for today's conversation with John and Sally of the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. Remember, you can find them anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit them on their website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. You can find me on YouTube, just search Gavin Fish, or you can visit me on my website, gavinfish.com. The website is chock full of investigation files on the cases I'm working on. Crime scene photos, interrogations, thousands of documents, timelines, and much, much more. And if there's a podcast you want me to know about and feature on the show, you can reach out to me there. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on your favorite true crime podcast.